KYW Original Podcasts. This is the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm Flashpoint host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the focus is the impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump. It's on and popping. I wonder whether or not Democratic leadership has thought this process through fruition. We look behind the curtain at the process, history, and the politics. Are we just becoming more and more divided? Is that how it is? And it seems to me like, yeah. Experts provide predictions on timing and outcome. We dig in. Then she unseated a 45-year-old political dynasty in West Philadelphia. I knew I had a shot when I jumped in the race. I didn't expect that we would win by the margin yes. that we won by. The candidate for the 3rd Councilmatic District lays out her vision. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump that centers on a phone conversation between Mr. Trump and the president of Ukraine and the alleged cover-up after Congress has moved swiftly, holding its first hearing two days after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced the historic step. The president must be held accountable. No one is above the law. President Trump has called it a witch hunt. It's very sad what the Democrats are doing to this country. They're dividing. So what can America expect in weeks to come and what will be the blowback in 2020? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Dr. David Barrett. He's a political science professor at Villanova University. We also have David Dix. He's co-founder of Illuminist Strategies and he's a political analyst. And finally on the phone we have Dr. Terry Madonna. He's a political pollster at Franklin and Marshall College. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Good to be here. So, Dr. Barrett, I want to start with you. Could you explain for folks who don't understand what an impeachment inquiry is? The Constitution doesn't specify details of inquiry, but it's very clear from the Constitution that the impeachment itself will be something like a grand jury considering an indictment. Should the president be impeached by the House, he's not removed from the presidency. He is, in effect, indicted by the House of Representatives. Then it would move to the Senate, which would decide whether or not to convict him. If he were to be convicted, he would be automatically removed from the presidency. So this inquiry is a very first step. And they've already started hearing. So it's like a gathering of information. And Terry, I want you to jump in here. What is the... If I could add, what's unusual about what Speaker Pelosi did is normally an impeachment inquiry takes place after a vote in the House chambers And then a select committee of members of Congress are appointed to actually go through the inquiry or the investigation. Right now, what she says is the congressional committees that are already investigating Mm -hmm. various aspects of Trump's, they're going to continue to do that. One big difference is select committee has subpoena power and other powers to compel witnesses that these congressional committees do not have. So that's one pretty big difference between what the speaker did and what's played out throughout American history. Yeah, and we've seen that before, and it's already causing uh, a political posturing, uh, David. How is that playing out in your mind? Um, It's playing out in a number of different ways. One, you have Speaker Pelosi who has to carry her caucus uh, along with this idea of impeachment. That was something that that was sought with friction a couple of months ago, but you're finding some uniformity there now. 
Um, but it's still going to be important for her to continue to lead her caucus in the impeachment inquiry. And then you have the Republicans who are playing their own games, right? Mm-hmm. So um, part of this whole impeachment process, it's important to note, requires uh, you know, a bicameral sign-off in a sense. And you know, as, as much as you can get through a Democratic-controlled House, um, getting to the two-thirds majority necessary uh, in the Senate would is 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 a, is a very steep hill to climb, uh-huh. and uh, yeah, I, you know, I wonder and I wonder whether or not Democratic leadership has thought this process through fruition, or if they're just responding to what seems to be very egregious. Um, communications with uh, with uh, between our president and the president of a foreign nation. Yeah, and and so Dr. Barrett, when you think about it, crimes and misdemeanors. I mean, there's a definition within the Constitution that, and it seems to be really fuzzy to me. Well, there is a lot in the Constitution that is fuzzy. I don't think your word is inappropriate. The Constitution leaves a lot to interpretation. It's clear, you know, there's some specificity there about bribery and treason and other high crimes and misdemeanors. In effect, while we can look back to see what the framers meant, and what they meant is if a president does something illegal or grossly inappropriate, uh, something grossly against the national interest. So the Constitution does not really specify very much. It becomes something that we today will do. I say we, the people, and especially the House and then the Senate. Dr. Madonna, I know that Americans have been very divided over this issue of impeachment and part of it is because of, the, of that fuzzy language. Oh, there's no doubt about it. President Ford, when he was a member of the House, said impeachment is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives mm. says it is. Oftentimes, it's, uh, one of the considerations is, did you violate a public trust? That often gets mentioned in terms of an impeachable offense. But the fact of the matter is that before the uh, transcript, Uh, the five-page transcript of the president's conversation with the Ukrainian president was released. I counted, or actually others counted, about 158 Democrats that were on board with the inquiry. Politico reported that it's now up to 218. Yeah, yeah. And one independent. So you can see where this is all going. Mm -hmm. The, The partisanship is really rearing its head even more than usual. Yeah. The timing. I mean, Speaker Pelosi made this announcement on Tuesday. By Thursday, they're rolling out the hearings and people's heads are spinning, David. Many, uh, particularly in the intelligence community, are, are saying this is uh, part of John Bolton's revenge. It's kind of like a, a walkout <laughs> salvo that he kind of planted on his way out. At the same time, you have folks that feel like um, this is Donald Trump at its finest. There was a uh, University of Wisconsin professor, Dr. Biko Baker, who said that, that uh, this is Donald Trump playing the political rope-a-dope. He wants everyone to feel like he's on the rocks on the edge, but is really like playing a strategy that has him being reelected next year. And I'm waiting to see the Democrats line out a strategy that goes parallel these impeachment process with the election process that we have, you know, in coming in coming months. And I don't know that they've found synergy there. I think David raised a, an important question about are the Democrats, the Democratic leadership, especially thinking strategically And I think Speaker Pelosi has been doing so, Mm. but she's also a politician who counts votes in the House, who who can detect a shift of opinion within the House, especially among Democrats. And also, uh, I'm sure she has her own reading of public opinion. We will understand public opinion better in a week or so to come. Um, But I think she has been thinking strategically. But I sometimes think, you know, Lincoln once said that, look, I am being moved by events. I don't move events. They move me. And I think right. she has here been moved by events. The news of the whistleblower 
complaint, and I believe sentiment shifted significantly. We see that in the numbers you've just mentioned toward impeachment. And so I suspect in her attempt at strategic thinking, she's thinking that President Trump will be damaged in public opinion by this impeachment process. But I agree with David. It is not at all a sure thing that it will play out that way. And Terry, jump in here, because in the past... Uh, impeachment hasn't been very helpful for the political yeah. party doing the alleged impeaching. Bill Clinton, we don't want to go back to uh, Andrew Johnson, who was uh, impeached for violating the tenure of office. He fired, he, in a sense, fired some people that he shouldn't have fired under a law that had been passed by Congress. But there's no doubt that Bill Clinton's occurred in 1998. Now, he had been reelected. Uh, the Democrats actually picked up some seats in the House after the impeachment Importantly, his popularity rose substantially uh, with the voters, despite the fact that he was impeached in the House but not con- not convicted in the Senate. The other quick point that I would make is that polls before before the current situation showed uh, showed more uh, less support for impeachment than those supporting it. But here's the key: Democrats supported it. Republicans did not. And so when Pelosi met with her own caucus before she made the announcement of the inquiry, I think David's right. The members in that caucus had been shifting, and I think she was under great pressure to move ahead to do this official inquiry, whatever that happens to mean. Are the Democrats walking, though, into a political trap, David? I think very well may could be. Uh, President Trump is someone who's very politically unpredictable. And he's been able to, in a kung fu drunken style, kind of bounce back from things that you would think, you know, are are, are detrimental or almost, you know, would, would, would end a political career for many others. I mean, we've seen him resurrect himself. And I think part of his advantage is his ability to connect with the average American voter. And, you know, intelligence-centered impeachments can be something that's very weighty. And if you don't have a history or an understanding of where that line is in terms of communication between uh, foreign uh, foreign leaders and our president, it, it can just sound like noise. And uh, I think that's part of what the president is counting on, that this is just going to sound like noise. And in the event that the Senate does not take up this impeachment inquiry and vote in, in favor of impeachment, then it's really going to sound like noise because you're going to have the Democrats having a very noisy proceeding. And then when it goes to the Senate, it's going to be voted down. And then what comes of that process when it's when it's fully complete? And, and Dr. Barry, when you think about this, because what is the actual power that the House has? And does it really mean anything if he ends up remaining in office at the end of it all? I agree if a president is impeached and but then not convicted by the Senate. I mean, in the most pragmatic sense, it means that he remains in the presidency and still has the bully pulpit, as Theodore Roosevelt called it, and that's not nothing. He continues as president. I agree that with David that the Democrats could be walking into a very bad situation, but I'm not convinced that they will be. Mm-hmm. Now, Terry is a pollster, but yeah. I'm going to say to Terry and to you all, <laughs> I am really, really interested to see what the public opinion polls show Mm. in the coming week or two about what shifts there may be in public opinion. I think, and one way I disagree with David, uh, yes, there are definite intelligence aspects to what's unfolding now, and I'm a scholar of intelligence agencies, but I think the public can relate to a central charge, which is that it it certainly appears that the president of the U.S. pressured 
the leader of the Ukraine, to look into uh, Joe Biden's son. And that is asking for an interference in U.S. politics. I think the public can relate to that, whether they agree with it or not. One of the big differences between the Clinton impeachment and, and the process that's going on now is the deepened and much more strongly held partisanship and polarization. Mm. Remember, 90 to 96 percent of Democrats give the president of the United States disapproval in his job performance. They disapprove of his job performance. Conversely, somewhere between 84, 85 percent to 90 percent of Republicans give the president a job, a positive job performance. This could galvanize the Republican base. So David's right. I mean, you could end up having Trump benefit from it. On the other hand, it's hard for me to believe you're going to have a lot of Democrats suddenly shift away from, you know, the disapproval. Millions and millions of Democrats refuse to accept the outcome of the 216 presidential election, in large part because Clinton won 2.9 million more votes, 2.2 percentage points over Trump. But the Russian collusion, you can go through it all, but Millions and millions of Democrats have not accepted the legitimacy of the Trump presidency, so you have to go there. But we do have to wait. The next couple of weeks in the polls yeah. are going to be very, very telling about the immediacy of what just occurred. Was it almost like the, the Democrats had to act, though? That's exactly because, what I was going to say. Mean, I don't it, know that Leader Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, could have done anything else. Yeah. You know, given, given the transcript and its release, given uh, Chairman Schiff's you know, ability, ability to control the narrative yeah. in the Intelligence uh, Committee hearings, uh, I don't know that she could have done anything else. But in in line with that... Are the Democrats thinking about who their nominee is going to be in five and or is six it a months? Distraction Are they for thinking the voters about too? Yeah. Exactly. Well, and, and they don't know, right? Right. I mean, there's so much that's up in the air right now. Could I say something yeah. about this so-called transcript? Because I think it's really important. What we have seen so far is is not a, a, what I would call a true. It's certainly not a full transcript. There was a full recording slash transcript made of the conversation that the president had with the leader of the Ukraine. We have not seen that now. By by law, it should still exist. What we have seen, though, is a is a very redacted, yeah, uh, brief right. sort of a transcript. And and I have to say that a, a story just came out from the New York Times saying that a couple of days before this conversation with the president of the Ukraine, that the president had actually directed that three hundred and twelve million dollars or something be blocked from the Ukraine. He specifically ordered this to the Pentagon and to State Department and things like that. And so this is another element of that that's not apparent from the transcript. The New York uh, Times also identified a CIA agent as being the whistleblower. And so and there's a, there's a lot of facts. for a lot of reasons. Yeah, there's a lot know, of facts. It's problematic for a lot of reasons. The fact that the New York Times would identify that. There can't be a ton of people who are CIA agents within the White House. And I think it makes it more harmful for that potential whistleblower. Yeah. Well, it also raises an interesting question. This is not the first nor the second, but the third conversation the president had that got leaked. And long term, if we forget about Trump for a minute and look at the, at the long term effects of this, what that translates into, given the fact that it's the third one with the uh, head of, of the government of Australia and another with the head of the government of Mexico, what that translates into is can the president of the United States have a confidential discussion with a foreign leader without it being leaked? And what does that mean for relationships with other countries and their willingness of their leaders to be candid and to chat with the president? And 
this could come back. I'm not. I'm not. We can get into whether what he did is indictable and you know blah 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 violation of the law and all of that. But the concern I have is what kind of precedent does this set, and what does it mean in the making of American foreign policy moving forward? Yeah, and I have to say, is there a fundamental level of distrust? For President Donald Trump, such that, you know, we're at a level where he can't even have discussions with foreign leaders without people getting trigger happy. Is there such a level of distrust where you don't give him the benefit of the doubt? Well, I think I have two responses. First, can I just speak historically? Presidents hate leaks. And every president who comes into office, every one of them, even the ones who were political pros for decades, like LBJ, when they get into the presidency, they are shocked. At what leaks, they are appalled and they are furious. They all are. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, President Trump, his experience is not so different. The other thing I want to say is, you know, if the president didn't say these things to the leader of the Ukraine, I mean, this is this is deeply inappropriate. We can debate whether it's impeachable. Uh, Even our Republican senator from Pennsylvania says this was really inappropriate. But if he didn't say things like this, they'd be less likely to leak. Our local folks, and I took a poll, Pennsylvania's congressional delegation is split, half Republican, half Democrats. We have eight of our Democrats are four. Uh, Connor Lamb said he needed more facts. He might have switched now. I don't know. And then we had six Republicans that went out against it and a couple that didn't have any statements online. So are we literally splitting the country along party lines? I think if anything, it it shows the growth of Democrats in our in our Pennsylvania delegation who have who are in favor of impeachment. Yeah. If you would have asked that question just three months ago, it would have been two or three uh, Democrats who are in favor of impeachment. Now that number has grown to to eight. So, I mean, I think it shows the growth within the Democratic Party and the alignment under the articles of, of the of the inquiry of, of impeachment for sure. And Terry, you had a uh, comment. Yeah, I mean, I agree. We have 18 members of Congress. The, there, it's eight, eight Democrats have come out in support of the inquiry. I'm not saying all of them support mm. actual impeachment. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, a few do, like Dwight Evans down there in your, uh, in, in your neighborhood. But the fact of the matter is, Connor Lamb, the other Democrat who is not of the nine, he's out in Beaver County, in a district that Trump won pretty handily. Uh, but not a single Republican member of Congress, to my knowledge, have come out in favor of the inquiry. In fact, in fact, uh, it's hard to find a Republican in the federal House of Representatives that uh, that supports the inquiry. And so what would it take to sort of get this off of party lines here? What, what, what kind of what would it take? Well, I, I'll go back to that full transcript, which by law should still exist. Perhaps seeing the the full readout, the full transcript of that conversation might move public opinion. Look, I'm never going to predict shift of public opinion very much in the Trump era because, as you were asking, you're saying, are are we just becoming more and more divided? Is that how it is? And it seems to me like, yeah, and and it saddens me. I mean, I it's it's very sad that that our country is so divided. I don't know what's going to change that. I hate to sound so pessimistic. What will this mean for 2020? If this ends quickly, will people focus on that or will we move on? If Democrats are going to be successful in 2020, they're going to have to be able to walk and chew gum. So that means they're going to be able to pursue this uh, impeachment inquiry, pursue it fully throughout however long it takes. At the same time, coalesce uh, around a candidate at the same time, nominate that person and eventually build an infrastructure that can defeat the current president. 
I don't know that they're doing both of those things. It seems like they pivot and focus on one thing and then pivot back to focus on the other. And it would be to their, de- to their detriment if they do that with this, with this cycle. I don't know. I'd love to I'd defer to the presidential experts uh-huh. on how long this impeachment inquiry can take. It's going to take months. I mean, I think it's going – what's fascinating about it is that Pelosi, I'm surprised perhaps now that she doesn't call for a vote to set up a select committee because the process in – six, seven congressional committees is going to be slow and laborious, and they're going to have to beg, borrow, and steal to get witnesses to come in to testify. So I I would be stunned if this process doesn't go into the new year, perhaps by several months. So it's going to play out in a major way in the presidential election. But remember, let's say it's over in February. The Senate doesn't convict, which right now seems more likely if the House impeaches uh, and, you know, then we've got months and months and months, and there's so many other aspects of the presidential campaign that are going to play out. So it's really hard to know its cumulative effect leading to next November. Yes. Yeah. And you said we are experts, and I guess there's some truth to that. But, you know, the, the <laughs> experts, whoever they are, don't really know the, the answers to your right. question. As Terry says, there's so much in play. Like right now, we have no idea who the Democratic nominee will be. Right. We really, I don't know, maybe my, our fellow guests here have an opinion, but I really don't have a sense yet of whether this is going to help or hurt Biden in pursuing the nomination. And if it's not Biden, who will it be? And then how will that person, is it Elizabeth Warren or someone else, how will they then deal with these impeachment questions? So so uh, I don't venture a whole yeah. lot of predictions. I, I would predict the House well, will probably impeach, yeah, but I also the, predict the, major, the Senate won't. The three major Democratic candidates have all come out for impeachment, and uh, and he, Biden was the last, and he couched it a bit, but it's fairly clear now that the three of them are going to argue strongly, at least for the near future, in, in, in the impeachment and use that in the rallying point with the uh, Democrats. Uh, I think the impeachment situation is and the connection with uh, – Hunter Biden and, and the former vice president, I think, is has a good chance of hurting Biden. He's, he's already been down in, in the Iowa and New right. Hampshire polls yeah. with Elizabeth Warren, who has a big surge going on. How would it look if this inqu- inquiry ends up, OK, we inquired, we did these hearings, but Pelosi fails to get a number, the number that is necessary to actually uh, pass a, a, an impeachment resolution. How does that look? That would be incredibly damaging to, to the speaker. I think. In proceeding into impeachment inquiry, she uh, has the expectation that her caucus would stand with her and support her uh, in moving that forward. To not be able to hold your caucus together and lose that vote would be incredibly damaging to her. And I think would, you know, have the common, again, the common American person begging what was that all about? Oh, yeah. You know, what was it all for? I think it's also important to note to, to some of the earlier things we talked about that no presidential candidate who was leading at this point in the campaign went on to become president of the United States. Yeah. When you think about four years ago, it was all about Jeb Bush. He was going to be the de facto Republican nominee and he's not, <laughs> you know, when you think about Paul Songas, we were talking about 92 and everybody thought Paul Songas was like going. Like Paul who? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Bill Clinton. And um, I'm older. I remember Edmund Muskie, 1972. <laughs> right. Everyone said he would be the nominee. And nope. you're like, who is that? So there's going to be a lot of dynamism in the campaign while again, parallel with this impeachment inquiry. And I think that's, you know, it's going to be a lot to control. It's going to be a lot to manage on behalf of the Democrats. And I have one more question before we close this up. Could this Trump White House just stonewall 
the Democrats and just make this a whole waste of time because he's been very uh, good at not responding to the current investigations that are already going on. I think stonewalling, uh, I'll give President Trump credit for releasing at least this partial transcript, but I, I don't think stonewalling will pay off for him. But I won't be shocked if he decides to to go with the stonewalling. All right. And because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. I'm asking for predictions now. Impeached or not impeached by the U.S. House? And who pays the price? And give me a quick line of why. I think it's more likely now that the Democrats move impeachment articles. There's a huge number that now support the inquiry. Not all of them support impeachment. I, I, I think the partisanship, the polarization is so extreme. The comments are so ripe. It would, it would surprise me if they didn't move towards impeachment. And uh, I agree with the comments made earlier that the Senate is not likely to convict. But I'll tell you, with this president, all bets are off. Dr. Barrett. I think the House will impeach President Trump. Based on what we know so far, so far, I'd be shocked by a Senate conviction, which means the president yeah. remains in office. Who it hurts the most, honestly, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Final word. Yeah, I think I'm, if I predict anything, I predict a hot mess over the next six to eight months. I think it's going to be uh, nearly impossible uh, for Democrats to both manage successfully an impeachment proceeding while uh, managing the the you know the the successful victory of a Democratic president. Um, I think this is to someone's earlier point uh, going to be difficult for Joe Biden to fully uh, come from. I think you know the idea that they that the president was able to point a finger at, at Hunter Biden is going to draw some questions. And uh, to to my point earlier, I think this could be a political rope a dope on behalf of. Uh, President Trump, if he's not convicted of impeachment, then he comes out and he's able to spin it as a vindication. And that's that's something that's shown to be helpful for him in the past. All right. Well, I want to say thank you so much to David Dix, a Dr. David Barrett and to Dr. Terry McDonough for being on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Next up, her grassroots effort unseated a 45-year-old political dynasty in West Philly. People were voting for change. The woman behind the win in the third Councilmatic District. We'll be right back. I'm Matt Leon, sports reporter and anchor here at KYW News Radio. Talking to athletes, coaches, people in Philly sports every day, you find out they have incredible stories to tell. So I started a podcast, a weekly conversation with someone you should know more about. It's called One on One with Matt Leon. Subscribe now wherever you listen. Hey, everybody, this is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. First, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Flashpoint podcast. Welcome to the Flashpoint family. Would you do me a favor? Would you log on to the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or whatever podcast platform that you use and subscribe to Flashpoint? All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. We have a yellow logo with the words Flashpoint with Cherry Gregg. Please subscribe. And when you get through with that, once you listen, Please, please, please leave us for a review and rate this podcast. We need your reviews to take us to the top. And if you have issues that make you hot under the collar, let us know. Our handle is Flashpoint Show on Twitter. Now let's get to it. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets folks in this city hot under the collar is change. Philadelphia is a one-party town with political dynasties abound, but one woman has made headlines for taking on a 27-year West Philadelphia stronghold and winning. 
Jamie Gautier took on longtime third district city council member Janie Blackwell in the May primary and won. And she'll be running unopposed in November. And she's here in the KWW studios. Jamie, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yes. So are you excited? Because November is about to be here. I am thrilled. I'm thrilled. Um, I'm honored. I'm excited about this opportunity. Yeah. So first of all, let's go back. Yes. To May. And I first heard about you, I think, probably in the springtime. Okay. And everybody was talking about you. They yeah. were saying, y'all, I think she got a legit <laughs> shot. Like, and everybody was like, really? <laughs> really? And then you won. Yeah. How did that feel? It felt wonderful. I knew I had a shot when I when I jumped in the race. I, I wouldn't have gotten in if I, if I didn't. And, you know, during the course of the primary, I talked to thousands of voters, which affirmed, you know, that, that we had a shot. I didn't expect that we would win by the margin yes. that we won by. It was decisive. And it made me feel so good that people were voting for change. Um, and they thought that I could be their partner in bringing that change. Yeah, and I have to say, and I mentioned Philadelphia is a Democratic city. You know, Democrats <laughs> outnumber everything else. Yes. And we do have political dynasties where you yes. see, you know, literally generations of a family, people appointing their successor, and you were not a, a, appointed. You Correct. literally went in there, built a grassroots campaign. Yeah. What shifted in West Philly? I think it's actually a shift across the city and, mm. and is consistent with a shift across the country um, where people are um, wanting to challenge, you know, longtime incumbents, wanting to get fresh voices, younger representatives in office. Um, I actually I watched the elections in 2017 where we elected a new district district attorney yes. who was sort of like an, an outsider. I watched as Rebecca Reinhardt, our new controller, challenge a uh, pretty longtime incumbent in that office. And so to me, it felt like that wave of change had come to Philly and that people were finally ready to challenge some of these dynasties. The thing is, I felt like a lot had been happening where people were kind of getting disillusioned. What do you think those little things were that sort of started to build up to say, you know what, we need we need new leadership here? I don't think it's lost on people that that we have these dynasties, that we have um, one of the longest serving council bodies in the country um, right here in Philadelphia. Wow. Um, in other major cities, there there are term limits. And so I think it was a mix of people kind of seeing what was going on and, you know, wanting to see some things shift in, in the city. Our neighborhoods are changing and I don't feel like people think that they're getting the benefit of that. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I think that people are willing to kind of put some some new folks in office um, to see if they can get the change that they're seeking. Yeah. And one of the interesting thing is you're not really I mean, you're young, a dynamic woman, but you've been in Philly. You, uh, yes. you are a Philly girl. <laughs> seriously. Yes. And I'm, I think I first met you when you were running the Fairmount Park Conservancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you've been in the spotlight. Yes. And so how does that work translate the work in the community that you've been doing for years kind of translate to the work you'll be doing in city council? It translates um, really well. So I'm a city planner, and I got into that line of work because I wanted to help residents to shape the communities that they want to live in. And that's what I've been doing in the nonprofit sector. So I started off after grad school working for an organization. And she went to Penn, y'all. 
Yes. yes. I went to Temple and I went and to Temple. I'm going to rep, you, you know. Very, very silly. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but, you know, I've worked directing funding towards affordable housing and um, helping to rebuild neighborhood business corridors um, when I was with an organization called LISC. Um, I led the Sustainable Business Network where I helped locally owned businesses to start and to grow. I led the Fairmont Park Conservancy where I helped residents to make improvements to neighborhood public parks. And so to me, my career has been spent helping Philadelphia. Philadelphians to build and shape the communities that they want to live in and thrive in. And I see being a district council person very much as an extension of that and, and as an opportunity to do that with even greater impact. Yeah. yeah. And I have to say, you come from a very unique family. Your family is, is real up yes. in here and civil rights, all of that. Tell yeah. us about how you grew up and sort of the qualities and values that have been instilled in you by your family. Sure. So I'm from King Sessing. So I'm actually from the district. Um, and, you know, as a child, I watched my dad. My dad is a lawyer um, and a longtime community activist. And I watched him. I watched him serve the community. I watched him advocate really hard for the rights of black people in Philadelphia, particularly around the rights of, of black people to have quality public education um, and around criminal justice reform. Um, and so my dad has been doing that work for as long as I can remember. Um, he ran for district attorney against Lynn Abraham in 97 and as an independent candidate and did very well, you know, especially for an independent in a democratic town. And so I grew up learning um, that it's important to serve your community, that it's important to stand up for what you believe in, and that it's important to be independent minded. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting is your dad, Leon Williams. Yes. He was actually running on much of what like he did this 20 years ago, yes, running yes. on much of the platform that Larry Krasner yes. now, people weren't ready people for weren't him. People weren't ready for it, yeah. People weren't ready for him. And, right. and so now, but they ready for you. Yeah, yeah. And so, so what is your vision? I mean, because there's so much happening with gentrification. Yes. Um, so many people of color being shifted and moved around and losing yeah. housing yeah. and stuff like that. And so... How are you going to deal with that? Because West Philly has seen a lot of this happening and it's happening so fast. Absolutely. And so my vision is an equitable third district where everyone can afford to live no matter where they lie on the income spectrum. And so, you know, I did talk to a lot of voters during the during the election and housing affordability and um, displacement of longtime residents is absolutely yes. at the top of everyone's mind. And so therefore, it has to be at the top of my agenda, looking at ways that we can use zoning as, as a means of creating a frame for affordable housing in the district, looking at the ways that we can um, transform vacant public land. And we have a lot of it and turn that into affordable housing, looking at the ways that we can incentivize and push all of these developers to create affordable housing in Mm. their developments, right? And looking at ways that we can help relieve the burden of property taxes, looking at ways that we can help renters. A lot of renters in the district are struggling and they're very vulnerable. Um, And looking at ways that we can better help people to make long-time repairs to their homes. So that's absolutely uh, at the top of my agenda. You're running unopposed. So basically... You in there. I mean, right now you got a plan. And I saw you launched a a website that says we hire. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Talk about that. I've never seen anybody (laughs) do that. Well, you know, I'm 
I'm building my team. And I've only made one staff selection at this point. So I did choose my chief of staff. Her name is Erica Atwood. She was a chair. I know Erica. You know, yeah, good Erica. people. Good people. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, she was the chairwoman of my campaign. So she was um, with me from the beginning of this. And she knows her way around City Hall. She worked for the Nutter administration mm-hmm. as the first director of black male engagement. And so she's going to be, you know, my, my chief of staff. But beyond that, you know, Erica and I have crafted um, all of the other positions that we think we'll need to make the office run and thrive and I don't feel like I know you know all the talent that's out there and so I want to do a broad open call for people who care about this district um, and who want to work with me and the residents here to kind of bring the vision um, to life. One um, well I'm excited about all of the positions but one that I'm particularly excited about um, we created a position um, director of equitable development Mm -hmm. Um, so that person is going to be the one to work with the residents in the district to um, kind of um, um, figure out the values that they have for development and to work with all these development interests to make sure that um, our district remains a place where everyone can can live. We're not just going to have like uh, development in the third be the wild, wild west. It's, it has to conform to the values and the principles that residents want. And we have to be building communities. So, And one of the things I've seen you talk about is poverty, yeah. the issue of poverty, um, you know, and, you know, uh, criminal uh, crime, poverty, all those things. And and yet you you see so much innovation happening in West Philly. And y'all got yeah. a really cool vibe out there. I just yeah. want to put that no, out there, too. It. When you come in the first hundred days, yeah. what are you going to be focused on then? Absolutely. Uh, housing affordability and things that we can do right away um, to make sure that, that we are creating inclusive communities and mm-hmm. that people aren't being displaced. Um, absolutely poverty. We have 36% of the folks who live in the district live in poverty. Mm-hmm. I think that's unconscionable. We have so much wealth, um, so many resources, so many jobs right in the third district. We must not be doing something right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what um, is happening? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. You know, so at, for instance, you know, we have most of the city's medical and educational institutions mm-hmm. right within the boundaries of the third district. We have the largest private employer in the whole state within the boundaries of the third district. And so I want to see um, what more we could be doing to to connect um, residents in the third to jobs that pay a family sustaining wage right within the the boundaries of the third. I also want to work with the institutions to make sure they're doing all they can to procure with minority businesses, with locally mm-hmm. owned businesses in the district. And I want to do more to move our neighborhood business corridors forward, like 52nd Street and 60th Street, and bring local businesses and jobs back to those places as well. I've gone to small efforts, but how do you boost? and really have it take off. You focus, right? I think the corridors have to be clean and safe um, and and inviting. Um, I think that you have to focus on sort of um, key properties that may be dilapidated or vacant, but if if they are transformed, they can be an anchor for the corridor. So I'll just throw out the Big George's on 52nd Street. That's been vacant for a really, really long time, right? But think about if we could really turn that property around and bring um, a nice family restaurant. That would bring a lot of other energy back to that corridor. Um, So I think you have to focus on key interventions. Um, And if you do, it can happen. I've seen it happen with other corridors in the city like Ogans Avenue, Mm. um, like Germantown Avenue. Those spaces didn't look the way that they do now, um, you know, a couple decades ago. This has been a summertime. You're still in a lull. What have you been doing post-primary but before the general? 
I mean, I'm still pretty busy. Um, nothing feels like being in a competitive primary, so nothing yeah. is that <laughs> stressful and busy. Um, but I've, I've been, you know, keeping myself busy, meeting with um, community organizations and civic groups in the district yeah. um, to hear about their work and what they want to have happen. Um, meeting with uh, my future colleagues. I've met with um, both the future freshmen, uh, Isaiah and Isaiah Thomas and Kathy Gilmore Richardson, and, and some of the senior um, council members. And so quite a lot of um, meetings to kind of just figure out the landscape. And building my team is going to be uh, a big effort. You've been in the spotlight all this time, but yeah. your life is going to shift. What do you think the biggest shift will be? So I've definitely had you know high-profile jobs like leading the Conservancy, but this is just on another level. Um, and I know that because I'm coming behind, you know, a long and big legacy that people are going to be looking at me, right? And as they should. Um, and so I think that will be sort of the biggest pressure. But I feel like I have a good pulse on on what people want to happen. And I'm, I'm going to build a good team and I'm going to stay focused on um, delivering what, you know, all those things that I talked about with the voters. And so I'm pretty excited about that. Wonderful. And my last two questions for you. I always ask people that this, what keeps you up at night? Wanting to, to make sure that I'm doing enough to help other people who are really vulnerable in the district. Um, because even though the third is just such a wonderful place to live, um, there are a lot of people who are hurting too. You know, 36% of people live in poverty. Um, you know, people, you know, there are many people who don't have secure housing, who are hungry, who are attending um, schools that are not up to par, who, um, young people who are experiencing um, violence. There was a young man that got shot um, right near yeah. my campaign office on, on 52nd Street. And so, Wanting to make sure that I can do enough um, to help all of those folks and to make a difference um, in, in their lives uh, as well as I take on this post. And my last question, what's what are the one thing you're most excited about day one? I'm excited about having the opportunity to represent um, such a dynamic place. I've never wanted to live anywhere else. And it's I'm honored to be able to work with the residents here to make change. So I'm excited about all of it. Wonderful. So I want to say thank you to you, Jamie Gautier, and I wish you luck. Thank you so much. All right. Next up, they're using the pulpit to hook police recruits. I think a lot of people will see the good that they can do. Two preacher brothers in her effort to diversify law enforcement. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to check out the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app. Apple Podcast app or other platforms. All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. Now we here at KYW, we are all about community. And in Germantown, two brothers are using ministry to recruit young people of color looking to enter law enforcement here in Philadelphia. They provide guidance and support throughout the entire application process. Here to tell us more about their mentorship program is Antonio and Juwan Bennett. Welcome to Flashpoint, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. I'm excited to be on Flashpoint. Yeah, I love that. I'm excited. <laughs> So, first of all, tell us about this program and why you decided to start it. I'm a Philadelphia police officer, and I had the opportunity of once I got onto the department, a lot of people that I knew from my community were interested in becoming police officers. So, a lot of them reached out to me and asked me about different steps in the process. And that started with one person who told another person. So, before I knew it, I had a lot of people that were coming to me. So, it just started from there. And then, with my brother being a criminologists we just put the whole thing together from there 
Yeah. yeah. And so you decided to use the church because you're both ministers as well. Yeah, we pastor a church in Germantown, 5701 Magnolia Street, called New Life Christian Fellowship. We founded the church four years ago together, and so it's like my best friend. So we really developed the program because we saw a lot of people who wanted to enter into the police force, and so we need to connect with people. And it's so awesome to use a faith-based lens because we can connect with churches and synagogues and mosques to really reach a broader applicant pool. Because y'all want good people up in there. You want good people wearing the badge. Definitely. And I got to ask you this because traditionally people of color try to avoid law enforcement. I've seen that. What is different about you guys that makes people want to be a part of it? Well, I would say we were were one of them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think you definitely have to be the change that you want to see. And also coming from a family of law enforcement, my father was a correctional officer. He's actually getting ready to retire as a sergeant. But seeing him every day going to work and put the uniform on and seeing how he was able to interact with people and treat people fairly was an example that I've seen that not everybody is bad in a profession, but we need people who can step up. Like prior to me being a police officer, I was a vice principal at a juvenile detention facility, and I would read the articles and watch the different publications what was going on in the city, and I was saying to myself, like, it's one thing for me to read and be cynical, but then it's another thing for me to actually go out there and do the job. And I feel like since I've been on the job, I've been able to do a lot of things to help the department and make a positive impact on my community. And so how do you convince people, though? Yeah, I I mean, I, I wasn't convinced, right? So I went to college at 15. First, I didn't know the avenues for research and like what it all meant. But I think when a lot of the myths were kind of taken away from me and you realize and you start to do research, you start to interact and say, how I can make a difference, especially being from Philadelphia as well, you can lend that credibility to that particular system and that insight that they may not have. We don't want, you know, your grandfather may have told you something, your dad may have told you something, but here is you can talk to police officers real time, recruiters real time. I think a lot of people will see the good that they can do. And for example, our church is connected to police chaplains. So in the district I'm in, the 35th district, we give a, like food to the community. We have a toy drive, which is like always wrapped around the corner. And so that wouldn't be possible if we couldn't partner with the police and have those avenues for support. So I think when people see those aspects and also everything is not just arresting people and putting them in jail. But getting in is another thing. It's about being prepared. One of the mm. things that we said was about looking at it like SAT prep. Nobody goes into the SATs without having been prepared for a year or two. You don't just show up. So what we're saying is that there's things that people need to know before they even get into the police department that I wish that I would have known that I had to overcome. Like one thing is you want to make sure that your credit and everything is in check so that can exclude you or one of the requirements that you need to have a license for more than two years. So if you know that you need to start working on a driver's license, then you need to be in the gym now. You need to be running now. You need to get your physical fitness up. So these are some of the, the things that so we want to So people be rolling up to you with bad credit, no driver's license, and I'm saying. Or just like some of the positives about the job, yeah. how they do have tuition reimbursement, medical benefits, or just the opportunities that the job affords you. Yeah. Even being able to work when the Pope came, that was a it was an awesome experience. Yeah, and so this whole program is new, yeah, but you've is. already had an impact with at least four people yes. who are yes. who have already applied and are yes. at some point yes. inside of that. Somebody already already got into right, yeah, yeah, been on a job for two years now. And how do you feel about that? I received a, a lot of help. I was the first person in my family to graduate from college from Penn State, and I completed that program in two and a half years. And other people mentored me, and they put their hand out and they reached out and helped me pull up. And he was saying that. 
uh, it's my responsibility to go back and reach out and pull people out. So when it was starting, when it was helping, it was just me giving back because so many people poured into me. So it's it's just it's really from a heart. It's really from a ministry uh, standpoint that you've got to do what Jesus did. He was amongst the people. He went out there into the community. They was hungry. He fed them. He didn't look at it as though it was a job, but it was his ministry. So for us, this is it's ministry. It's just another way to give back. Yeah, and I think so too. I mean, uh, it put it a uh, uh, I guess a burning desire to say, are there other individuals who may be successful if they had this type of support as well? And so really was by trial and error and said, well, why don't we already utilize the networks that we already have to continue the work that we're already doing? And so now instead of kind of having these one-off mentoring sections, we have something more structured and something that has more of a system, then we're probably going to help and impact more people. And so you too, do you yeah. have anything coming up? We have yes. actually uh, our first mentorship sessions at the church, New Life, which is in the Germantown section of Philadelphia, Tuesday, October 8th at 5 p.m. And so police recruitment will be present, background investigators, and it's kind of opportunity to talk with them and to talk with us, police officers, people of color. A lot of times they say you can't be what you can't see. And unfortunately, a lot of times police often see people at their worst times and they have those maybe negative interactions, but this is an opportunity for people to have positive interactions with police and, and have those conversations that may begin to sway them. Of so you're like, come on, join the yeah. force. Yes, and we join know that this force. is not the ultimate solution. Not a silver bullet. It's right. not the silver bullet, but it's just a piece to the puzzle for us to better the community relations between the police and community. So where can people go find you online? We do operate a Facebook page through our church, just Antonio Bennett or New Life Christian Fellowship Baptist Church on Facebook. Wonderful. So I want to say thank you to Antonio and Jawan Bennett for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this important issue in the news. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As controversial Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan once said, United, we can solve our problems. Divided, we have nothing. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.